0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part two of our presentation of the essay on German Economic Policy by Dr. Wilhelm Bauer of the German Institute for Business Research, Berlin, 1939, published by the Terramare office in Berlin. The purpose of presenting this essay is to show from original National Socialist documentation that Hitler's Germany was not a Marxist state, but rather it only sought independence from all Jewish economic paradigms, both Jewish usury-based capitalism and Jewish Marxism, real socialism. And and we defined Christian socialism back here several months ago on a program I did with you, Sword Brethren. Real socialism is an economic paradigm which places the means of production into the hands of the producers, thereby assuring the economic survival and independence of the people. Right. The opening remarks.
1: It's not a system where the government takes everything you have and they distribute to whoever is the most loyal.
0: Well, well, right. Well, that's Marxism, right? That's Marxist socialism is is redistribution and and forcing everybody to the bottom rung on the economic ladder so that everybody would be the same unless you're one of the Jewish in crowd and and then you become basically one of the owners. Real Marxist socialism is the economic expression of the Talmud. National socialism is the antithesis to both Jewish capitalism and Marxism.
1: I think the, the triumph of National Socialism in Germany was because it represented the collective will of the masses to throw out the Jewish usurers and the Jewish capitalists without running into the arms of the Jewish communists. They wanted a Germany for Germans and a German economy that actually worked for Germans Instead of working for international Jewish money power,
0: well, well, absolutely, they, they, and they wanted the nation. And this is a, um, a a good Christian philosophy, and 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 it's actually a good Germanic philosophy. Uh, until recently, when Germans are becoming be, because of the, the 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 alluring power of the Jewish media, Germans today are becoming more. Um, consumer-oriented, I, I remember an article in the Wall Street Journal about 10 years ago, that may, maybe eight years ago, that actually complained that Germans weren't like Americans, that Germans didn't borrow themselves into luxuries and, and line their homes with all sorts of trinket on cheap consumer credit. And, and that's how Americans do it, right? I mean, all Americans have several large-screen televisions in their homes and new pickup trucks in their driveways and 18 pairs of jeans and, and $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 running up on their credit cards. That's the average American family. They live in debt. They work to pay the interest. And, and, and the Jew is happy. The Jew loves that, and, and it keeps greasing the wheels of his artificial globalist economy. Well, the Germans weren't like that. And the Wall Street journal, I remember an article that lamented that, and I just laughed because if the world were like germans and then we probably would have a hell of a lot less jews that the um the The basic premise i 'm trying to to assert here is that adolf hitler 's national socialist Germany that their economic policy was designed so that Germany as a nation would live within their means and, and not export things that 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 Cause the nation to sell off its valuable capital a- assets in order to pay for that it would cause the nation to surrender its sovereignty to the international to the Jewish international bankers.
1: Well, you know, even the Austrians, the Austrian economists, the demesis Jewish school of thought, the capitalists—they admit. Well, I, I shouldn't say they admit because it's not an admission of some fact they want to conceal. They attack the Roosevelt administration, FDR. And in the attacks, they point out that the New Deal deepened and prolonged the Depression. It caused a panic and a recession in 1936, and that the Depression technically did not end until 1947, 1948, due to about 18 years of forced savings. People had, you know, there was nothing to buy in the way of consumer goods. And when 15 million men had been drafted into the military for World War II, they were deployed and... It wasn't as though they could walk to Sears and Roebuck or order something through the mail, so they just saved up all their army pay, and a lot of them looted an awful lot of stuff from France and Germany when they were there in the war in Europe. Then they came home, and they all wanted houses and cars, and there was a big boom. And well, finally, well, the, actually, the Depression it, ended. But if, if you take away military spending from the war years, the Great Depression was still raging in 41, 42, 43, 44, 45 but unemployment was largely over because they drafted 15 million people and they put tens of millions to work in the factories. But for the most part, GDP, if you adjust it and take out military spending and government spending for the war, GDP was still shrinking.
0: The the way I see it, the the New Deal did um, exacerbate the suffering of the Depression, but it conditioned the citizens of, of the United States for the coming Marxist programs of, of, of the later 1960s and 70s.
1: Right, the LBJ Great Society.
0: Right. Now, now that's first, right? And, and the New Deal set the, the, the tone and the paradigm for that Great Society. The New Deal was a microcosm of that Great Society. Well, well the, um, the New Deal exacerbated the problems of the Depression, but it conditioned the country to accept Marxist socia- socialism, which was later imposed. The New Deal also, not only, not, not only did it deepen the, the depression, but it set up a, that bureaucracy that would be needed later in, in order to build the great society upon. Now, aside from that, there was no money for, for capital investment in, in, in necessary manufacturers, not manufacturers in the 1930s and the early 1940s, but as soon as as America was meddling in the war, there was plenty of money to build trucks and tanks for Lend-Lease. And as soon as America entered the war, there was plenty of money to build up the war armaments and industries that America needed to wage the war.
1: Well, that's because the Fed had contracted the money supply in well, well, the 30s, and then they expanded the money supply.
0: But the fault is with the average American for believing the media of that time and not actually witnessing and perceiving what was going on
1: right and a lot of people you know my my grandmother her generation they're convinced that fdr ended the depression and and world war ii ended the depression and it made the country great but the uh, the austrians point out this is one point where they're correct that wars do not increase prosperity and spending on military items that are going to be destroyed on a battlefield is basically just taking money and throwing it down the drain. And Hitler even said, too, that war will not increase the prosperity of the German nation. We do not wage war for material considerations. I do not want this war to continue one day longer than necessary for Germany to be secure. And Hitler said that the only people who were profiting from this war were the international bankers and the, um, the war profiteers who own the munitions factories.
0: What what really amazes me is the way people swallowed the Jewish media propaganda of the 1930s and didn't recognize National Socialist Germany for what it was, even though they watched it for, for all those weeks during the 1936 Olympics and, and, and saw this vibrant and, and – and, um, I'd have to call it happy, this vibrant and happy nation – in, in the midst of a depression and, and the misery of things like the Dust Bowl and 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 the economic stagnation that was occurring in the rest of the West, it, right. it's a, a total disconnect. It's totally cognitively dissonant. I, I, I don't get it.
1: Roosevelt took advantage.
0: Uh, of I guess the I would chaos. have. Had, hmm? I guess I would have had to live through it, but I didn't have that opportunity.
1: Roosevelt, I, I, in my opinion, took advantage of the chaos, the confusion, and the hopelessness of the depression to essentially begin laying the foundation for a dictatorship in this country, a monetary dictatorship anyway. You know, Wilson got the ball rolling when he signed the Federal Reserve Act and created the Federal Reserve. But FDR, when when he started talking about packing the Supreme Court with more judges and validating their rulings, the military should have deposed him or the citizens should have overthrown him. I mean, partisan politics aside, if if the president declares himself above the law and above the Constitution because he knows what's best and he's going to take this country in a different direction than the Constitution allows for, then it's time to use all legal means or any means and remove him.
0: Well, you know, the Roosevelt administration was was basically – I mean, the Jews had a lot of inroads into earlier administrations, don't get me wrong. I mean, they had Wilson where they wanted him and um, several others, but the Roosevelt administration was the first. I I see it as the first administration, which like the Obama administration now and and the three um, Bush administrations of the 80s and 90s, the Roosevelt administration was the first administration which was actually run by nothing but Jewish gangsters. That's the way I look at it, or or, or their fellow travelers.
1: You know, the... Owen Lattimore, Alger Hiss, what
0: was it? uh, Well, well, right. They were all communists. They they were all Jewish communists and and, um, wayward Anglo communists. But they were all communists.
1: Right. Every one of them, to the T, was read. They were read through and through. And McCarthy was right to call them all out for it. And history should have vindicated him, but since the history books are all written by Jews, he's still vilified, even though it's been demonstrated and proven if not necessarily in mainstream history, well, mainstream conservative historians have demonstrated with declassified Soviet documents that all the people he called out, they were either communists or some were outright NKVD agents from the NKVD itself. Well,
0: well, McCarthy should be a hero, except that the people that he was fighting won the war and they're writing the history. And, and that's why McCarthy's not a hero. There's no doubt. It, it's one of the things I have on a slate um, it is an, an editorial, um, which which talks, it, it, it's not going to be too deep, but it's going to discuss how our mainstream academia and mainstream history remembers all the men that were the traitors to our race and, and venerates them. And, and the men that actually stood up for our race the last several hundred years, they have been marginalized, ridiculed, or absolutely or, or demonized, or absolutely forgotten.
1: Right. You, you ask a teenager in a high school today who Huey Long was, or George Lincoln Rockwell, or Gerald L.K. Smith, or Father Coughlin, and they don't know. Maybe they've heard that Rockwell was a Nazi agitator, but you ask them who um, FDR was. Oh, they all know FDR.
0: Well, well yeah. right. Anybody that's actually done the work of the devil is venerated and, and, and idolized in society today. And, and that goes back, it goes back for a thousand years, the, the way history remembers people. How many, how many school children today know about Frederick Barbarossa or Otto I? And they, they've probably all heard of a Calvin or, or, or anyone else who's basically um, been friendly to, to world Jewry or Judaism. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther, he's hard not to know about because there's such a large Protestant church built on his name, but that church doesn't represent anything that Martin, the real Martin Luther was about.
1: Right. In fact, uh, if, you, if you go into the parking lot of a Lutheran church, when they're filing in for their Sunday service, and you try and hand out a copy of the Jews and their lies, they're going to run you out, or they're going to call the police, they're going to say Martin Luther couldn't possibly have written that, so they're Lutheran in name only. They want nothing to do with the legacy of Luther, though.
0: Well, well, right. Anyone that's actually stood up for, for something of substance in in um, white Christian history has has been demonized, ridiculed, or, or forgotten, or corrupted or perverted. It's incredible, and, and the traitors are venerated. And I had Cotton Mazer in mind when when I thought about the the idea for the for the article. But I I have to stop talking about it and someday get to start writing. All right. Oh. Last week, we, we we presented the beginning of this article. We, the, the booklet itself is not broken into two parts. We just needed two parts to cover it, and, and hopefully we'll get it finished tonight. We've already um, been off topic for about 20 minutes. Well, we began discussing um, this booklet last week, and, and um, we had laid out some things from Mein Kampf to show that Adolf Hitler's economic philosophy, as he wrote in Mein Kampf at least – Um, well, probably about 14, 15 years before this was very consistent with what we've read in this booklet so that we see that Adolf Hitler's political plan before he came to power and the plan that was implemented after he came to power were very, very similar. I I mean, they were alike. He did not change. He was not the, the politician who was a whore, who promised the people um, tomatoes, and when he got elected into the office, they ended up with potatoes. I mean, he didn't do that. He he, he laid out his plan, he laid out his philosophy, and when he came to power, he put it into effect, just as he laid it out.
1: That's exceptionally rare in politicians these days, and I'm reminded of the last white prime minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, when he was first campaigning to get elected to parliament and he was seeking to be the leader of the nation, he basically laid out his entire world view. He told the people, here's what I believe. If you don't agree with me, don't vote for me. I don't need this job. I'll be happy to go back to my farm. Where today, no politician will tell you, if you don't agree with me, don't vote for me. They want everybody's vote, and they'll say anything they need to convince you, vote for me. Vote for me. Absolutely!"
0: Now, now, last week when, when we discussed this pamphlet at the beginning of it, defined a relationship between state and business in National Socialist Germany. And, and this is also an important platform and a, an important philosophical thread in Mein Kampf is that the, the state should never be subservient to its economic necessities, but economic needs should be subservient to the people, and, and business should never rule over the state, but the state, being the expression of the will of the people, should control business, should control the business environment. And um, that, that's Adolf Hitler's um, economic policy in, and, and philosophy in that respect alone is far superior to anything that we have in the Anglo West where basically corporations are now um, – People writing laws in Washington and, and, and handing them to senators and, and they go vote for them and, and they get passed. It's incredible that oh. now the tail is wagging the dog. The corporations in the Anglo West let, – let me say, and, and this is something that we're going to see tonight, so it's important to express. In, in the Anglo West, in when, when this nation, the United States, was founded, at that time, corporations got their charters – by the various states in which they operated in. And those charters were temporary, two years, four years, ten years, whatever. And the legislatures of those various states, they had to approve a charter before the charter was granted and the corporation could function. And when the charter was over, it was at the mercy of the legislature. The corporation was at the mercy of the legislature to renew the charter. If the legislature said, well, you know, General Motors, you really haven't done a lot for Michigan, so we're not going to renew your charter, then General Motors would have to dissolve and no longer operate in Michigan.
1: They'd have to liquidate their assets and shareholders.
0: And perhaps move the the profits and and whatever they got to their capital to another state and, and function there, but they couldn't operate.
1: So if I'm the owner and main, and main operator, I'm the president of the Carolina Tobacco Company, and I have a 10-year charter, and during those 10 years I've spent the time importing you know, a huge amount of Negro slave labor, and now the public is concerned that they're outnumbered 6 to 1 by Negro slaves, and people don't approve of that, and they'd rather that I employ white men. And I say, no, we're not going to do that. Well, my charter oh. might very well not get renewed
0: because you 're not serving the interests of the state, and, and that was the same that 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 control of the people over industry in, in their community is anathema to the jew and the jew fought hard and and, and the money interests fought hard throughout the nineteenth century in, in, in the in the anglo West to get that um, that paradigm changed, and they did. They were successful. The, mo- the money powers won out, and today corporations are—well, are, 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 well, they pay a lawyer, they go file their papers, and, and, and they're permanent persons. That they're permanent entities. It's, it's, it's insane because they don't work in the interests of the people in the communities where they function. They only work in the interests of maximizing profits for their shareholders, and that is not. How traditional business was done in, in, in Anglo-Saxon nations. It is not. And Adolf Hitler, he, his paradigm was a lot closer to the original one which we had here in America. A- and he wanted the state to control business and not allow business to control the state because business never cares about the state, the fabric of the state. I mean, Pepsi-Cola doesn't care if 30 million Mexicans are drinking it, or 30 million Anglos are drinking it. And, and, and if 15,000 Negroes are making it, or, or if 15,000 white men are making it, they're only going to pay a, a certain amount to get it made, and they're going to hire who the hell they want. And, and they don't care who they sell it to. Fact, as long and more to the
1: point, many of these companies are openly hostile to the interests of the people in this nation who are descended from the founders of this nation. and By that, I mean the companies are waging a thinly veiled war on white people, and sometimes it's not even veiled.
0: Well, well right, and, and that's because when in, in a pluralistic society, they feel that they have the most possible consumers, and that's all they care about. That's all corporate – well, well I, you can't really call it corporate America. It's not corporate America anymore. That's all the corporate world cares about is right. maximizing the, and, 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 and basically um, – putting their their marketing in a blender so that the same marketing works for for every single market and and they don't have to to have all these exorbitant costs in producing um, marketing in in various languages aimed at various cultures. They only care about um, reaching the most possible consumers at the lowest possible costs. They don't care about ethnicity. They don't care about national boundaries. They would prefer that all of of that is destroyed, dissolved, broken down, so that their life and their business is easy. It's the same thing with with, um. and and it's the purpose of the Uniform Commercial Code. At at one time, the the Jew lawyers had to deal with 50 different states with 50 different sets of laws, but those laws are the expression of the will of the people in each state, And, and those states are sovereign. Well, they've gotten them all to adopt this UCC in order to make uniform laws for every state so, so that their costs are lower, so that their costs of doing business is lower, and, and, that's, and, and that's contrary to the interest of the people in each state. It's, it's business, international business, global business, has really, really caused a lot of damage to our race in a lot of ways that we don't even realize it. And, and, and that's, Adolf Hitler was standing against that.
1: Two things and then I guess we should probably hop into it unless you have a follow-up comment one when you see a company a major company and their ad says equal employment or equal opportunity employer that basically just means they're complying with the law and they have to put that in the posting because well they have to but when they go on to put affirmative action employer that means they're going above and beyond the law and that basically is their way of saying white men don't even bother applying so there are many companies in this country that are openly hostile to the people who are maintaining the white civilization in this country. And two, they would love to see all borders fall, because then there would be nothing keeping the other people from coming here. We would just be one more zone in a world government system, so doctors from India would come here. They're willing to work for 50000 a year, and I'm sure white doctors don't want to work for 50000 a year, but they would be crippled through brutal price competition with the Indian doctors, and the same thing with engineers from India, China, Mexico. If the corporations could tear down the borders, which, incidentally, the Marxists also want the borders torn down, too, but if they could tear down the borders, our country would be flooded instantly with potentially three, four, five hundred million other people.
0: Well, well capital without borders... I, I read the Wall Street Journal all through the 80s, and, and it was in the 1980s and that, that, um, 90s, early 90s, that I realized... The conservatism that mainstream conservatism was basically a shell it wasn 't conservative at all I just didn 't know why it wasn 't until I, I found um identity christianity and and some of the um, some of the conspiratorial historians that i 've read the last fifteen years that that I realized why it was like like that. But, but long before I realized why it was like that, I realized that it was a problem with mainstream conservatism that it really wasn't conservative at all. It was anti-conservative because capital and, and, and the Reagan revolution, Ronald Reagan, the Republican Party, and all, all this phony patriotic conservatism, what was all about globalism and the dissolution of borders and, and capital sought for, for many centuries, ever since the emancipation of the Jew – Capital has sought the dissolution of borders, and, 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 and that's, they, they want liquid capital worldwide to be able to um, go anywhere, buy anything, and, and, and that's any, any opposition to that is that they classify as wicked, and, and they vilify it because it's racist for the most part. Well, well. in the first part of this program, we had discussed the aims, or we had actually um, presented Wilhelm Bauer's discussion of the aims, not only the relationship between state and business, but the aims of economic policy in National Socialist Germany. A- and um, their dis- his discussion of the need for the indirect and direct regulation of, of production and we will get into the regulation of consumption soon, but which they also sought to do in order to ensure that Germans consumed things which were readily available to the German people without large amounts of imports, but which is vital to a healthy economy to have a balanced import-export sheet. We also talked about how um, the fact that Adolf Hitler and his economic policy cared about having a balanced import-export sheet by itself is proof that National Socialist Germany never wanted to conquer the world. Now we will get into um, the capital investment policy in National Socialist Germany. That's the next section of this paper. I have, a lengthy, I have a lengthy quote from Mein Kampf. We could, we could do it before you start reading this section.
1: All right, and one final thing. On, on Mein Kampf, I forget where it was, and, and you may be um, intending to cover it at some point during this program, but Hitler declared – I forget the exact page, but he said that men do not rebel against tyrants. They do not rise up and form a new government simply for business and commercial reasons, that the state that men create is not created simply so corporations can come along and operate in a different climate or a, a more lax business environment, that men rise up, they sacrifice, they fight, they endure misery, and they risk their lives and even die for the future of their people, their blood, their race, their children.
0: Well, he, he, he did say, I remember that, you're paraphrasing rather loosely, right. I do him saying something like that. I don't know if I already had the quote in, in here or if I, I'm going to use it at all in, in this short series, but Adolf Hitler did explain that men fight for their kindred, their people, their blood. They don't fight for for for, for the benefits of, of international corporations. That they simply don't. Uh, until 1960s America, that's when men began to fight for the benefit of international corporations.
1: Well, to even Hitler, before then, look at them. Um... Smedley Butler
0: couldn't see the future. I'm sorry.
1: Look at Smedley Butler, that Marine Corps general, the hero. I mean, well, well he was- right.
0: Smedley Butler, he was a little ahead of his time with that. And, and I'll tell you who else. And, and, and I've been wanting to, um, to to do some research in this area, and, and that was Gerald Nye. Gerald Nye was a U.S. senator who, who did an investigation on the military-industrial complex and and, and the bankers in the aftermath of World War I, and, and he called them the merchants of death. And he had Senate hearings, but they never got anywhere. And his attorney was actually a young Alger Hiss.
1: Interesting. I'm sure yeah. that's just a coincidence.
0: Yes, but his merchants of death speech was what was, what was famous until the Jews could bury it in, in, the, in the memory hole, which is basically where it is today. Okay, I'm gonna. In order to set the tone for this for this um, for Doctor Bauer's discussion of capital investment policy, in National Socialist Germany, I'm gonna read from Mein Kampf, pages one thirty-five and one thirty-six. This is a little lengthy, but hopefully it'll be worth it. In proportion to the extent that commerce assumed definite control of the state, money became more and more of a god, whom all had to serve and bow down to. Tell me that's not America today. Heavenly gods became more and more old-fashioned, and were laid away in the corners to make room for the worship of mammon. This is Adolf Hitler. And thus began a period of utter degeneration, which became specially pernicious, because it set in at a time when the nation was more than ever in need of an exalted idea, for a critical hour was threatening Germany. Germany should have been prepared to protect with the sword her efforts to win her own daily bread in a peaceful way. Actually, what Hitler's referring to is he's referring to that period that we discussed, which was presented um, by Dr. Wilhelm Marr, I believe, in 1872, where he wrote that booklet, The Triumph of Judaism Over Germanism. And he was actually discussing the the, the triumph of commercial Jewish usury banking capitalism over the German people. And he saw that, um, well, 50 years before Adolf Hitler, but but I'm sure that Adolf Hitler had, if he didn't have Wilhelm Marr as a direct influence, I'm sure he had a lot of the same influences that Wilhelm Marr did. Back to Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf page 135. Unfortunately, the predominance of money received support and sanction in the very quarter which ought to have been opposed to it. His Majesty, the Kaiser, made a mistake when he raised representatives of the new finance capital to the ranks of the nobility. Admittedly, it may be offered as an excuse that even Bismarck failed to realize the threatening danger in this respect. And the Bismarck period is right when Wilhelm Marr was writing, right? In practice, however, all ideal virtues became secondary considerations to those of money, for it was clear that having once taken this road, the nobility of the sword would very soon rank second to that of finance. And and that's exactly what we saw in in, in the English nobility in the 19th century. The Jewish bankers became the noble class of England, And, and for that reason, this very day, Most of the nobles of England have Jewish blood. Financial operations succeed easier than war operations. Hence, it was no longer any great attraction for a true hero or even a statesman to be brought into touch with the nearest Jew banker. Real Merit was not interested in receiving cheap decorations and therefore declined them with thanks. But from the standpoint of good breeding, such a development was deeply regrettable. The nobility began to lose more and more of the racial qualities that were a condition of its very existence, with the result that in many cases the term plebeian would have been more appropriate. Adolf Hitler's describing that with the rise of the Jewish bankers and the worship of mammon in Europe in the century after the emancipation of the Jew in the 19th century... That the Jews basically became the nobility by intermarrying with the nobles. Once they were put on the same footing as the noble Prussian race in, in, in Germany, the Jews started intermarrying with them. And he complained about that in several instances in Mein Kampf. And, and, and we see in, in his own worm Act, in his own Wehrmacht later on, and, and Hitler respected his army and left most of it intact. in his own Wormack later on, many of the general staff. Were, were, were suspected of having Jewish blood. Or they were and,
1: married to Jews.
0: Or, or they were married to Jews, or, or, or they, they were one-fourth or one-eighth or one-sixteenth Jewish. That was the result of this, of what Hitler is writing about here.
1: Basically, Jewish financial trickery, or as society might view it, Jewish financial success allows them access into the bloodlines of the elite nobility.
0: Right. Let's go back to Adolf Hitler. A serious state of economic disruption was being brought about, and, and this is important. This is the, the, these next couple of paragraphs are a crucial point here before we present um, National Socialist Germany's capital investment policy. A serious state of economic disruption was being brought about by the slow elimination of the personal control of vested interests and the gradual transference of the whole economic structure into the hands of joint stock companies, which is what happened here in America at the same time right and, 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 well mostly after, after the um, the 1930s for the most part most american companies couldn 't stand without going on to the markets and, and becoming and their, their um, capital becoming liquidated across tens of thousands of, sh- of shareholders who were at the mercy of Jewish investment bankers. Back to Adolf Hitler. I'm sorry for all the digressions. In this way, labor became degraded into an object of speculation in the hands of unscrupulous exploiters. The depersonalization of property ownership increased on a vast scale. Financial exchange circles began to triumph and made slow but sure progress in assuming control of the whole of national life, which is what we've had here in America for 50 or 60 years. Before the war, the internationalization of the German economic structure had already begun, and he refers to World War I, had already begun by the roundabout way of share issues. It is true that a section of the German industrialists made a determined attempt to avert the danger, just as Henry Ford did, right? He wouldn't borrow money from the Jews for for many years. But in the end, they gave way before the united attacks of money-grabbing capitalism, which was assisted in this fight by its faithful henchmen in the Marxist movement. And yes, they were working hand in hand, and yes, Adolf Hitler knew it. The persistent war against German heavy industries was the visible start of the internationalization of German economic life as envisaged by the Marxists. This, however, could only be brought to a successful conclusion by the victory which Marxism was able to gain in the revolution, and he's talking about the November Revolution, right? As I write – and 1919. As I write these words, success oh, is – You're thinking
1: of the, the revolution of 1918, the November criminals that I betrayed.
0: I, I do. You're wrong. That's okay. As I write these words, success is attending the general attack on the German state railways, which are now to be turned over to international capitalists. And, and we see that all over America, right? States surrendering um, – Interstate highways and, and all sorts of infra- infrastructure, water systems, and, and all sorts of natural resources are being surrendered to international capitalists because America has a, has a very serious deficiency in its import-export balance sheet. And the, the logical outcome of that is that foreigners own the our nation. It's, it's unavoidable when you export um, a fifth or a tenth of what you import in goods every year, the the, the unavoidable consequence is that your nation becomes owned by the foreigners who are the beneficiaries of the import-export imbalance.
1: Well, breaking it down on a small example, if you have a business and I have a business, and I buy $10,000 a month in in products from your store, and you buy $100,000 a month in products from my store, and you're buying on credit, well, basically, I own your business.
0: Absolutely. Hitler goes on to conclude in in this section of Mein Kampf, as I write these words, success is is attending the general attack on the German state railways, which are now to be turned over to international capitalists. Thus, international social democracy has once again attained one of its main objectives. Adolf Hitler clearly saw that the Jewish stock markets and Jewish Marxism were preparing the way to corner the world into a Jewish New World Order. Today we see the results of it. Adolf Hitler, he saw the beginnings and, 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 and the, 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 um, the, the uprising of it, and he saw it 80 years ago. Hitler was clearly pro-capital. This, this um, pericope in Mein Kampf, and, and this, it's throughout all of his writing, the, the fools that criticize National Socialist and, and, and try to put it in the same class as Marxist Socialism, the fools who do that, and they are indeed fools, really don't actually read anything that the National Socialist produced. Hitler was clearly pro capital. Capital is only the ability of individuals to own the, the means of production, whether that means of production be a carpenter that owns his own hammer, or whether that means of production it is a, um, a, a man who manufactures pots and pans who owns his own factory and his own equipment. It, it's still capital. At, at one level or another, that's what capital is. It's the property that's required in, in order to perform a function. And whether it be a factory or, 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 a, or a truck, a delivery truck, it doesn't matter, it's capital. Hitler was pro-capital. He was all for the private ownership of factories, of tools, of, of anything that business needed to, to function. However, he was anti-Jewish capitalism. He, he saw the importance of responsibility of businesses to communities and individuals who were of German blood in a German community who owned those factories, the, the, those other implements of capital that, that were needed for business to function, those people would be res- more, a, a lot more quickly responsible to Germany and German interests than 10,000 foreign stockholders. 10,000 foreign stockholders are not going to function in a way that's beneficial to the German people. And German business should function in a way that's, that, that assists and, and, and helps to perpetuate the German people. That's the way business, business is a tool of the people. It's, the people aren't supposed to be a tool of business.
1: Well, even if the foreign stockholders wanted to function in a way that helped Germany, how could they? They're not there on the ground they don't know the conditions in the community. They don't know what the people need or want. They don't know anything about Germany. So even if they had the best intentions, they still can't achieve anything.
0: Well, well that's, that, that's absolutely the, the, the problem with international capital. That's the problem with Jewish capitalism, that the idea that companies in your community are owned or, or whether it be factories or restaurants or any other business, it really doesn't matter, are owned by anonymous people overseas who really don't give one whit about your community, and, and they're just there to make a profit, and, and that business isn't, is not a vital functioning part of the community. It's basically just a parasite. Right, And that's I, how I, business is conducted in the West today. It, it's all parasitical.
1: I'd like to do a brief reading here from Mein Kampf, followed by a more in-depth reading. Page 17, German Austria must be restored to the great German motherland and not indeed on any grounds of economic calculation whatsoever. No, no. Even if the Union were a matter of economic indifference and even if it were to be disadvantageous from the economic standpoint, still it ought to take place. People of the same blood should be in the same Reich. The German people will have no right to engage in a colonial policy until they shall have brought all their children together in the one state. When the territory of the Reich embraces all the Germans and finds itself unable to assure them a livelihood, only then can the moral right arise from the need of the people to acquire foreign territory. The plow is then the sword and the tears of war will produce the daily bread for generations to come. So Clearly, Hitler's conceiving of a state that does not exist simply for economic purposes. Foreign policy is not just a tool used to advance some economic agenda. And to continue on, page 126. The triumphant progress of technical science in Germany and the marvelous development of German industries and commerce led us to forget that a powerful state had been necessary, had been the necessary prerequisite of that success. On the contrary, certain circles went even so far as to give vent to the theory that the state owed its its very existence to these phenomena, that it was above all an economic institution and should be constituted in accordance with economic interests. Therefore it was held, the state was dependent on the economic structure. This condition of things was looked upon and glorified as the soundest and most normal arrangement. Now the truth is that the state in itself has nothing whatsoever to do with any definite economic concept or a definite economic development. It does not arise from a compact made between contracting parties within a certain delimited territory for the purpose of serving economic ends. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures organized for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind and to help towards fulfilling those ends which Providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch. Therein, and therein alone, lie the purpose and meaning of a state. Economic activity is one of the many auxiliary means which are necessary for the attainment of those aims. But economic activity is never the origin or purpose of, ex- of a state. Except when a state has been originally founded on a false and unnatural basis and this alone explains Why a state as such does not necessarily need a certain delimited territory as a condition of its establishment? This condition becomes a necessary prerequisite only among those people who would provide and assure subsistence for their kinsfolk through their own industry which means that they are ready to carry on the struggle for existence by means of their own work. People who can sneak their way, like parasites, into the human body politic and make others work for them under various pretenses can form a state without possessing any definite delimited territory. This is chiefly applicable to that parasitic nation which particularly at the present time preys upon the honest portion of mankind. I mean the Jews. The Jewish state has never been delimited in space. It has been spread all over the world without any frontiers whatsoever. It has always been constituted from the membership of one race exclusively. That is why the Jews have always formed a state within the state. One of the most ingenious tricks ever devised has been that of sailing the Jewish ship of state under the flag of religion and thus securing that tolerance which Aryans are always ready to grant to different religious faiths. But the Mosaic Law is really nothing else than a doctrine of the preservation of the Jewish race. Therefore, this law takes in all spheres of sociological, political, and economic science which have a bearing on the main end in view.
0: The instinct... Well, well, let me say that Hitler made the mistake, and, and it's the classical mistake, of believing that the people of the Old Testament were Jews. And that's a, that, that's a fatal error. Now, let me also say that the Mosaic Law can function in that manner for anybody who adopts its precepts and, and, and has a good um, racial instinct. And, and the, the, even though the Jews are, are a very mixed race, they, they will always favor other Jews above all other people, even to the point where they don't deal at all with other people at certain levels. They only deal with other Jews. Now, if the people to whom the Mosaic Law was first, um, f- first created for, if those people had actually practiced it, well, then, of course, today we would not have Jews. All right.
1: The final paragraph. The instinct for the preservation of one's own species is the primary cause that leads to the formation of human communities. Hence, the state is a racial organism and not an economic organization. The difference between the two is so great as to be incomprehensible to our contemporary so-called statesmen. That is why they like to believe that the state may be constituted as an economic structure whereas the truth is that it has always resulted from the exercise of those qualities which are part of the will to preserve the species and the race. But these qualities always exist and operate through the heroic virtues and have nothing to do with commercial egoism, for the conservation of the species always presupposes that the individual is ready to sacrifice himself.
0: Let let me try to explain a... um... And, and, in, and I can't, I can't tell you where I got this from. It, it's, it's. Um, but when I first read this, and and I believe I got it from Adolf Hitler from Mein Kampf. I really do. I sincerely do. I might be wrong, but I sincerely do. But but I believe that Adolf Hitler certainly felt this way, and and I think it's he who I learned this from, and, and it's the. Um, You know, where Adolf Hitler says that the Jew always gets others to work for him, most non-Jews and most of those people in this world who are not savvy investment bankers won't understand how the Jew gets others to work for him. And I would like to explain what um, Adolf Hitler thought about um, technical – technical development, the, the, the ability to develop intellectual property and, um, and, and what that means to a culture and what happens to it when the Jew gets his hands on it. And, and this is a really important concept to understand because under, if we understand this concept, th- then we understand the reasons for the, the, the reasons that run a lot deeper than Wilhelm Bauer has expressed in his booklet, the reasons for Adolf Hitler's um, economic philosophy in relation to race and the German state. Let's say that you're a, um, you're a scientist, right, or an engineer. Let's say you're an engineer, okay? Now, it took a nation to create an engineer, The nation, a nation, a body of people who live together of of the same race, that's what a nation really is, a nation created the, the schools and built up over many, many centuries the knowledge necessary to put you through a university for you to become an engineer. The nation created the peaceful climate which is necessary for you to sit in your basement or your garage laboratory and and, and create things and, and those things that are the fruits of your engineering education. You follow me?
1: Right. But it's
0: an uh, entire uh, nation to create, even though you're a genius, even though you as an individual could probably be capable of doing many things, you really can't do those things on your own. It took an entire nation of people many centuries to build the universities, to build the, the techniques, to develop the knowledge necessary to make you an engineer.
1: Well, as a qualifier, I just wanted to say that that is true, but we can't bring an alien into this nation. And well, well,
0: no, this is my point, right? Let, follow me through, right? Now, as you're sitting in your garage and, and you're building your widgets that you developed with your engineering expertise, right? We have farmers who, who make your bread and bakers who make your bread. We have, we have ranchers and butchers. Who, who bring you your meat. We have garbage men and, and all sorts of other people in the community that are integral to your, to your developing your, the fruits of your engineering expertise because if you had to bake your own bread, if you had to take out your own trash, if you had to raise your own um, sheep or cattle to eat or chickens or whatever, you wouldn't have time to build your widgets. Okay, now a nation can produce a lot of bakers and butchers and ranchers, but it can't produce a whole lot of engineers because not even though the entire nation has the capacity, the the genetic material to produce engineers, only one in a thousand is actually going to um, have the the high level of intelligence necessary. along with the the other characteristics, such as diligence and, 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 and things like that, to be able to become an engineer, okay? But the engineer produced by the nation. The engineer is produced by the nation, okay, and educated by the nation. The nation, therefore, the nation owns just as much as the engineer himself, The nation owns, has a stake in the intellectual property which the engineer produces. That was Adolf Hitler's belief. Now the Jew comes in, the international Jew comes in, and he creates a corporation on paper out of nothing, abracadabra, boom, we have a corporation. And he creates thousands of shares of stock and puts a value on his corporation and creates thousands of shares of stock out of nothing out of nothing, out of thin air, boom, and sells them on the promise that he can take your invention, which he doesn't really even own yet, that he could take your invention and, and, and um, make billions of dollars with it, the worship of mammon, right? So the Jew, out of nothing, creates the ability to coax you out of your invention, because he's going to give you a few million dollars. And then the Jew takes that damned invention and moves it to China. Boom, it's gone. 200 years, 200 years of development to create you and your education are in China. With all of your expertise and knowledge, they're now in China. Now, now let's say you were making um, central processing units for giant computers like the, 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 the um, Intel Pentium processors, or or whatever. Now, the Chinese, who never put one ounce of effort into the development of that, who could never in 10,000 years, who could never create all the things in harmony that had to come together to create that CPU for that computer. Now they have them, because we gave them to them. Because they fell victim to the Jew who can create money from nothing and buy everything of value that we have because we Chi- worship Jewish money? Chinese never
1: even invented batteries. They never harnessed electricity. We just gave everything to them.
0: Now, the Jew bought this invention from you. And to hell with the community that had the stake in this invention that, that had all of these centuries of. of um, all of these centuries of, of national development as an investment in you, the engineer. The community owns your ass. You shouldn't be able to sell your inventions for, for a few Jewish dollars to the Chinese, dollars that were created out of thin air, created out of nothing. That's how the Jew gets other people to work for him. And all of our work as a race for the last how many thousands of years we've been developing the society that we've developed? Well, the Jew owns it now because we worshiped his mammon. It's that simple. And now the Jew has taken this, this knowledge of ours and, and given it to all of our enemies, to all of those people who, who for thousands of years wanted to wipe us off the map, and, and, and now we're just doormats for the Jew. And Adolf Hitler wanted to prevent that. He wanted to prevent that in Germany, and and that's a that, that's a um, a major underlying philosophy in Mein Kampf. So so that's it, it's it, it it was a long explanation, but but if we think about it, the things that we as as brilliant men are able to create, what what we didn't create. Alone, it's our community, our race, our our kindred had every bit of a stake in assisting us in creating these wonderful things. And and therefore, our race, our nation, they own our produce as much as we do. They have a stake in that as much as we do. Our intellectual property, the the wonderful things we're able to, to invent our kindred, our entire community has a stake in that. But we lost that. We, we, lost, we somehow didn't realize that when the Jew began to securitize everything and, and, and create these corporations that bought up all of this intellectual property and, and then just gave it away to our enemies. Just gave it to the Chinese. Just gave it to the Africans. Just gave it to whoever. For nothing, the Chinese now have um, computers, and and they put not one ounce of, of labor into developing the computer.
1: So basically, we've taken Stone Age civilizations in Africa. Well, I don't even want to come civilizations. Stone Age societies in Africa, and maybe Bronze Age societies in Asia, and we've brought them into the information age.
0: Well, well, right, and, and these people have have traditionally been opposed to us for, for many, hostile to us, right, for, for many many millennia, and now because of international capitalism, they're on the same level that we're at.
1: Right. I mean, a hundred years ago, could you imagine the, the Chinese with aircraft? It would have been an absurd notion.
0: But and Jewish the, international capitalism is the vehicle that gave the Chinese aircraft
1: and nuclear weapons and everything
0: A- and everything else, right? E- even e- even simple things like the like, like the the Colt forty-five revolver or, or whatever the the Colt forty-five semi-automatic handgun, whatever.
1: Right, and and now they have all of our machine tools.
0: Right, they have all of our machine tools. That they have all of that knowledge. It, it's we've just taken. Um, Centuries of Anglo Saxon ingenuity, and through the excuse of international capitalism, what well, we've surrendered it to all of these other people.
1: Right, and in the true free market and free market enterprise in a national socialist context. You, you're welcome to buy a factory that has, you know, 10,000 workers and hundreds of machine tools, and now you get the profits and the proceeds, and you get to distribute the dividends. That you well, that's because
0: Chu uses capitalism as a tool to get other people to work for him. Right, but And he creates wealth out of nothing so that he can purchase the, the fruits of your nation and, and do them as he desires.
1: What I'm saying, in a free market system... You're free to buy a factory from the factory owner, whoever built the factory, and now you enjoy the profits and he's out of the business. But the Jews have perverted that, and it's no longer an issue where the, the, new, the new owner is free to enjoy the profits and continue operating the factory. He's going to take the factory and all the machine tools to China, and the Chinese have no part of it. They didn't invent the machines. They didn't operate the machine tools. They didn't build the factory. They didn't build the civilization and society that supported the development of the machine tools but now they have all the machine tools because some Jew bought the factory and decided he can move it out of the country, and the community tolerates it.
0: Well, well right. The community tolerates it, and the community shouldn't because the community has every bit a stake in that factory and in the intellectual property and the knowledge of that factory. The community has a greater stake than the individual that abs- that. that, that, that put the automobile together
1: well basically uh, to to break it down into an example everyone can wrap their minds around let's say you write a book and you want to sell a million copies for ten dollars each i buy one copy then i have a million copies printed in china and i put them on the market for three dollars each because it only cost me 20 cents a book in china i don't have a right to do that i have a right to buy one copy from you or ten copies from you and sell them at a yard sale, sell them to local readers at a book club, or to to keep them all and read one myself. I'm buying your book so I can read the book. I don't get the rights to the book so suddenly I can mass market it and undercut you. You're the only one with rights to the book. And that's what the Jews basically want to do. They want to buy one machine tool, then reverse engineer it in China, produce a million of them, and that's all there is to it. And then we're left holding the bag.
0: Well, well, that's basically what capitalism has done to us. It it stripped us it, it stripped us of the value and, and the toil that we as a race have put into the things which our society has been able to develop. It stripped us of all of that and and handed it over to people who never did the, the, who never went through the, the development. Necessary, in order to be able to create those things for themselves
1: no argument for me on
0: that, that that's that, that's the the greatest evil of capitalism because when a man produces great things, the community which which um, sheltered that man and the community which afforded that man the ability to obtain the education necessary to create those things, that community has as much a stake in the, the fruits of that man's labor as the man does. And somehow we lost the sense of that in, in Jewish individualism, right? Individualism is Jewish, Adolf Hitler was also, that the, um, his 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 um, his social philosophies in Mein Kampf are also um, adverse to Jewish individualism. Individualism has killed us as a race.
1: Well, especially reckless individualism in the face. Of overwhelming collectivism on the part of the other races. The blacks, the Mexicans, they all operate as collectives. The Jews are a very well organized insular collective, and individualism cannot beat collectivism. If you take on, um, let, let's say the enemy team has, you know, the, their football team's on the field. They have, what is it, 11 people in a football team? I don't even know. And you say, well, okay, well, I don't need a team. I'm just going to go out there alone. Well, you're going to lose and lose hard, it won't end well that's basically what we're doing. Every time a a white guy is in trouble, no no other white people rush to his aid. But if there's a a Negro in a fight with a white guy, 20 Negroes can be walking by. They don't know who's in the fight. They don't know that Negro from anybody, but they see a black guy fighting a white guy, and they're going to rush in there because it's one of their own.
0: That's true. That's absolutely true. I know that from experience.
1: And white guys have the attitude that it's every white man for himself.
0: And that's sad.
1: And with the Negroes, too, it could be even, you know, one's from a Crips, one's from a Blood, but they see a, a rival gang member fighting a white guy, and that gang rivalry goes by the wayside because he's of the same race. And, you know, blacks help blacks when they're fighting whites or Mexicans.
0: Well, well absolutely. But we've lost that. We've lost all sense of that. And, and it's sad. And, and that's a process that began in the 19th century. Well, well, I don't know how far we're going to get into this paper tonight, but would you like to start reading capital investment policy, the next section of Doctor Wilhelm Bauer's paper?
1: Thus, the regulation of capital investment activity really it's needs about a- two
0: paragraphs short.
1: What's that?
0: You're about two. Pa- You're missing the first two paragraphs. It's above the mine comp.
1: Oh, my, my bad. Sorry. Capital investment policy, among the large number of methods of directly influencing production, I have to mention first the government orders which predominate in some economic branches. Apart from this, a good deal of direct regulation of production by the government consists of the regulation of capital investment activity. Thus, the regulation of capital investment activity really means a planned direction of capital investment, This was proved especially necessary when work was started on the four-year plan. In a certain sense, capital investments were scaled according to urgency. Four-year plans, rearmament and exports are the most important. A number of measures have been introduced in this connection. They may be classified as follows. There are capital investment prohibitions, the purpose of which is to prevent industries whose capacity is sufficient to cover demand from extending their plants. This prevents needless using up of limited capital and material available and avoids overproduction and consequent disturbances of the market. We have such capital investment prohibitions, for example, in the paper industry, in the glass industry, in part of the textile industry, and in part of the chemical industry. And as an aside, I would generally argue against that. If there is any risk of overproduction, you simply export it and then you run a a, a trade surplus. Or you would offset it. But but
0: the Germans were also concerned about using up very limited natural resources for things that possibly may not sell, or or for things that the nation wouldn't use. Right. I, I
1: I won't argue against that. That's a valid concern. In the second place, the regulation of capital investments and production by profits and sales guarantees given by the government. I've already emphasized that national socialism adheres to the principle of private initiative. However, this does not prevent the state, if it seems necessary, from relieving private business of some of the risks it runs in undertaking certain projects. These profits and sales guarantees given by the state are especially important in the production of staple fiber, motor spirit, and synthetic rubber. Motor spirit. I'm assuming he means motor fuel or motor oil. Right. It's a bad translation there. The companies engaged in such production in Germany are private firms. Their profits, however, have been guaranteed by the state to a certain extent, since their products are of great importance for the economic policy of the state. In some fields, the state itself has gone into production and has for this purpose made capital investments. The principle that business is to be left as far as possible to private initiative does not mean. That the state cannot engage in economic activity in certain fields of production and under certain specific conditions this is the case for example in the field of iron ore production after the loss of territory in the war only a small part of germany's iron ore requirements could be covered by domestic production in view of the fixed costs and prices prevailing and under the usual methods of exploitation only part of germany's iron ore deposits could be mined with profit the dependence on imports in the case of such an important field as iron ore had to be eliminated. But the conditions and problems in this type of production were so peculiar and so extensive that the state correctly assumed the initiative itself. The government founded a company, the hermann Guring Reichwerk, the business of which is the mining of low-content iron ores which abound in Germany. Subsidies. One of the oldest and best known methods of state investment both here and abroad is the granting state
0: of subsidy intervention, I'm sorry, state intervention.
1: Oh, state intervention, what did I say? Investment. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, sorry. State intervention both here and abroad is the granting of subsidies by the state. Outside Germany, especially in the United States, subsidies are well known above all in the shipping industry. Here too, private business is not in a position itself to operate an economic branch in the way the state considers desirable. The same thing holds in Germany for some spheres of production. For example, certain building projects, such as the building of dwellings for agricultural workers, or the erection of settlements for industrial workers, are carried out either directly with the help of contributions from the state or indirectly with the aid of loans granted by the state on extremely favorable terms furthermore the production of non ferrous metals has been supported by state subsidies for many years and I suppose that the Mises crowd the capitalist so-called libertarians in this country they would prefer that instead of the state making loans that the Germans just go to the international bankers and ask the Jews in Manhattan to give them loans which of course I I can't conceive of any situation under which international Jewry would loan money to the Third Reich unless they were doing so to manipulate the Reich.
0: Well, well, right, but in in truth, National Socialist Germany wanted to um, regulate business and not let business regulate the state. and, and, And on the other hand, once it was understood that the state was going to regulate business and make sure that business functioned, for the benefit of the people of the state, then National Socialist Germany was willing to cooperate with business and, and help make sure that business in Germany was profitable. And, and one of the ways it did that was to, um, to first make sure that businesses didn't um, flood German markets, and, and, and for that reason, production was controlled and, and it was directed. To things that the German people needed, and and what, well, whatever the state felt the German people needed. H- however, that they, the, the benefit is not allowing markets to be flooded and and, and thereby destroying um, not only companies but profitability and jobs and and surplus goods that possibly couldn't be sold abroad and things like that. It, it was a controlled economy, and and, and the. the um, the downside of that is that you might have a better idea than the state at any given point, but still the, the necessarily good side of that is that business was going to operate for the benefit of the people and, and whether business liked it or not, and and that's the way it should be. What we can't let people within the state um, – Drive the economy into the ground at the expense of, of their of their kindred. It it just can't be allowed to happen, and it happens here all the time. We can't let people in a state take it unnecessary well take um, cutting advantage of of other people in the same state through a, an abuse of of business and capital. So so it it's you know it's it might be nanny state. Yeah, you know, and, and that's how the Mises crowd would, would actually call, probably um, disparage it. But the state has um, every bit of a right to make sure that business within the state operates for the benefit of the people. And, and that's something that, that um, works well, the other way around in, in the Anglo-West.
1: Well, what's the alternative? The people exist just to maintain an economy and to work themselves into an early grave, so, so that internationalists the, can pocket all the money.
0: That's the position that America is in today, because they didn't make sure that that business operated for the benefit of the people, and, and in fact, they were convinced that basically um, international corporations were a good thing, and, and that that the people should should. Um, conform to the desires of international business, which is what is done in America. And, and the American government subsidizes many industries, but most of those industries are not benefiting the people. In, in fact, many of those industries are killing the people. But look, at the, look at the subsidies that we give in this country to the sugar industry, for instance. Look at the, look at the subsidies we give in this country to, to outfits like Archer Daniels Midland. But with ethanol and things like that.
1: Also, uh, on one hand, there are massive subsidies to tobacco farmers. Yet on the other hand, the government maintains anti-tobacco campaigns.
0: There's all sorts of, of um, ways that the American government caters to business to the detriment of the people. And, and German policy was precisely the opposite of that. And it used subsidies and, 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 and sales guarantees where the, where the government would buy the goods. If, if the government dictated what your company was going to create, the government used because the, the government thought that the people needed that, that the, the, the um, welfare of the nation was, was dependent upon having that, those goods, then the government would make a guarantee to you so that you, you, you would know that you wouldn't lose money, even if you didn't think the manufacturer of that was a good idea. So, so, so there were all sorts of policies in, in National Socialist German Economic Policy. There were all sorts of policies which assured that the state would, would cooperate with business and, and that businesses businesses that followed the, the controlled, the directed economy wouldn't lose money, that they would be able to survive and, and, and be um, sustainable. So it's a two-way street. It, it wasn't a one-way street. It wasn't dictatorial where, where the government told business what to do, and, and that's the way. To, no, no, it was much more cooperative than that. And the government guaranteed profits, and the government um, had a subsidy program, had subsidy programs to, to ensure that businesses would be able to, to, to maintain themselves. So it wasn't dictatorial at all or totalitarian, it, it, was a, um, it, it was a climate of mutual cooperation, provided that business cooperated with the state.
1: Well, in that book I mentioned Vampire Economy, Doing Business Under Fascism by Gunter, let me see, how do you pronounce this last name here, Gunter Raimon, he talks about the so-called destruction of the sanctity of private property. And he maintains that the following conversation took place involving a farm owner. He refers to him as an agrarian friend who spoke with a banker. Quote, I want to invest my liquid funds in a way which is safe, where they can't be touched by the state or the party. In the old days, I always refused to speculate to buy stocks. Now I would not mind. However, I would like best to buy a farm in southwest Africa. Perhaps my next crop will be a failure and I will be blamed, accused of sabotage, and replaced in the management of my estate by a party administrator. I want to be prepared for such a contingency and have a place to go should the party decide to take away my property. The author then writes, the banker was compelled to inform the landowner friend that there was no such way out. The state would not allow him to leave Germany with more than 10 marks. Southwest Southwest Africa was closed to him. He would have to stay where he was. And I'm assuming... The man who calls himself a farmer and has enough money that he wants to invest it buying farms on speculation in other countries, he's not actually out in the field working. He's just a Jewish landlord who has farmer tenants, Germans, doing the actual work. Right. So somehow this guy is putting this forward as evidence that the Germans were persecuting businessmen and they were taking land from farmers. I, I can't think of the name of a single farmer who lost his farm to the Germans.
0: But no, in fact, Adolf Hitler explicitly, in, in Mein Kampf, explicitly sought, um, had policies which, 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 and, and economic philosophies which sought, which sought to protect the property rights of even the largest landholders in Germany. And, and he, he expressed that ex- explicitly in Mein Kampf that even the largest landholders had, had a right to their property.
1: Right, but somebody who's thinking of buying farms overseas based on speculation, I'm assuming the man has to be a Jew.
0: Right, and, and, and National Socialism was very much, um, very much against. It, it had a great dislike for, for speculators, right?
1: And this man goes on to write, at least half the time of a German manufacturer is spent on the problem of how to get scarce raw materials. These cannot be obtained without a certificate from one of the supervisory boards which distribute the available raw materials domestic as well as foreign. Usually a manufacturer needs dozens of different materials. He cannot work without any one of them. For each one, there is a special supervisory board with a different procedure with all of which the businessman must be familiar. For example, before a builder starts work on a new building or even accepts an order for repairs, He has to make sure that the various supervisory boards will issue permits and certificates. And then he goes on to talk about some labyrinth and a bureaucratic nightmare. And he actually paints a picture claiming what a German auto manufacturer has to do to get 5,000 tires for his cars. And then it begins on June 2nd with an executive in a plant deciding to purchase 5,000 tires. The plant leader of defense industry okays this. He employs a contact man who recommends the trade group leader, the chamber of business, the recommendation of labor front, party secretary, and then it continues along from June 2nd all the way down to November 8th, when 1,000 rubber tires and 4,000 air tires arrive. And the the, um, tires arrive approximately five months after the original order and at a greatly inflated price due to the price commissar increasing the price. I don't think there's any basis in fact for this little diagram that this Jewish author has painted.
0: Well, well there's, no, there's no basis in fact. It, it only seeks to disparage German economic policy and, and, and to attack German protectionism. Right? right? And, and, and German protectionism, German trade policy what was geared so that germany did not import first it, so that germany didn't import things that it really didn't need to import but mostly so that germany didn't import um raw materials that that weren't that the come that the country could live without that weren't necessary or or vital to the national economy wow and to the national to, to their national existence they were there were all sorts of exceptions for things that Germany could not obtain otherwise. And, and we're about to read in, in this booklet, German policy on a regulation of raw material consumption. However, the, um, the Germans sought to promote innovation in the creation of synthetic materials over a, a loose ex-import policy uh, of importing materials from other countries, which would have to be paid for what with debt.
1: You know what? I just found out about the author of this book, this book that was recommended to me by a so-called identist, capitalist, libertarian, Mises type. I'm about ready to beat oh, okay. him well, for well, the head well, with this book. A,
0: a, a, um, an identist Christian shouldn't be a capitalist or a Mises type, or, or a libertarian, because libertarianism is Jewish and it's not Christian. It's Luther,
1: anti Gunther Reimann was born hein, Hans Steiniki. He was a member of the German Communist Party and at the forefront of the underground resistance to Hitler. He was born Jewish. well of course well he was a Jew. he was you know he was, there's no I guess, if you're born, you know what I mean. He, he was Jewish. He lived in New York City after fleeing Nazi rule. and he wrote the book, Vampire Economy: Doing Business Under Fascism in 1939 claiming that Nazism represented a huge threat to the autonomy of the private sector through over-regulation and the threat of confiscation of assets. So he's not a free market advocate, though. He's, a, he's an out-and-out communist, a card-carrying communist, and he's accusing the Germans of threatening the autonomy of the private sector.
0: real vampire economy is, is Jewish capitalism. What, right, what's... and,
1: and the, 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 these accusations are coming from a communist, though, so they're pretty hollow. It's it's disingenuous.
0: I don't have the luxury to book, but it doesn't sound like anything I really want to read.
1: Well, it's straight-up garbage. The communists claiming that the Germans confiscate assets and that Nazism is bad for private investment. So suddenly, communists believe in private investment? No, he's writing a book for a Western audience that would be hostile to the idea of confiscatory taxes and confiscation of assets. He's not going to say oh, the Germans are bad because they're confiscating assets from Jews when really they should be confiscating assets from the Goyim and nationalizing everything and collectivizing agriculture. I mean, the guy's a communist who's he's throwing stones at the Germans for confiscating assets from a few Jews. If he wanted to write about you know economic difficulties, he, he could have written a book, The Destroyed Economy, Doing Business Under Stalin.
0: <laughs> the regulation of raw material consumption... Back to um, Dr. Wilhelm Barr's German economic policy, right? Right. The third group of measures of government production regulation concern raw material consumption. Almost the whole of German industry is subjected to the system of raw material quotas. The essence of quota fixing lies in the control of imports, which Germany wanted to prevent at all costs, right? Which was introduced in 1934 as part of the New plan for German foreign trade. The control is carried out by 27 control boards, one of which has been set up for each branch of industry. So there's really only one control board to go through for, for, for any particular branch of industry, right? And 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 not 27 control boards to go through for each German company. That's ridiculous, right? That, that's the way vampire economy, I believe, that the author you were just reading quantifies it, right? one of which has been set up for each branch of industry. Factories which use imported raw materials are only allowed to purchase a certain volume of raw materials abroad. Normally, the basis of the quota fixing is the consumption of a certain certain month, but the importance of the orders which the company has to fill is also taken into account. Export orders being given special consideration. So if you were um, Volkswagen and you were building cars and you needed those rubber tires because you had export orders for thousands of cars, you would be granted a, a, um, a special consideration to import the rubber you needed for the tires. It's that simple. Apart from the system of import regulation, there exists a number of decrees dealing with the use of raw materials. For instance, as a result of the scarcity of wool and cotton, it has been decreed that all wool and cotton cloth manufactured in Germany for the domestic market must contain a certain percentage of staple fiber. Certain products, for example, doorknobs, may no longer be made of brass. In private residential buildings, only a certain amount of construction iron may be used. This system of regulation has been carefully worked out and is not too strictly bureaucratic in its application. In many cases, the usual raw materials must be replaced by new synthetic raw materials, which can be produced without any import. The use of these new synthetic raw materials does not mean a lowering of the quality of the finished product. On the contrary, the shortage of raw materials leads to new inventions and improvements and even brings about, as in the case of BUNA, which is synthetic r- rubber, a technical progress which otherwise would not have occurred. What this is about isn't a restriction of, of um, an undue restriction, restriction of manufacturing. What this is really about is, is basically... Um, impelling or or compelling the country to live within its means. It's very simple. If the nation was to survive economically in, in a world surrounded by Jewish capitalists, the nation had to live within its means if it wanted to maintain its independence and not surrender its sovereignty to the Jewish capitalists. It's that simple. And the Jew might scoff at that today. Well, well, of course. But but look at where Jewish capitalism has has gotten us in in our own national sovereignty and and in the maintenance of our racial integrity. Look at where that's gotten us.
1: Well, our nation's in ruins.
0: Absolutely. And all the West is in ruins. So... so, uh, um, National Socialist Germany sought to maintain its sovereignty and and in order to do that they could not um, ring up debts with with the importation of goods that it didn't necessarily need or or that it could find a way to do without. It's that simple. And Germany thrived for um, long enough that the Jews understood that it had to be destroyed.
1: Well, they can't allow an example to continue existing. Germany was an example and it stood in stark contrast to the picture the Jews wanted where you need an FDR with a new deal or you need a Stalin with an iron grip. National Socialist Germany was going to show the world what was possible when Jewish usury is brought to an end. Absolutely, It had to be destroyed soon.
0: Absolutely. There's no doubt. Okay, we're going to end this here. Well, We're going to end this with the regulation of the labor supply. And, and um, I really thought this would be a two-part series, but it looks like it's going to be a three-part series, and, and that's fine. It might be a four-part series before it's over, right? Thank you for joining me tonight, and, and we'll be back next week with um, National Socialist Economic Policy Part 3.
1: All right. Yahweh bless. Thanks. Praise
0: Yahweh. Good night.